my money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's the rich man's blood. We have done what we have to do. He counted on America to be passive. He counted wrong. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or Board of Trustees. Good morning, everybody, uh, or good afternoon, shall we say. Um, we have a very special guest today. We're going to have David Enrich on. Um, he's a uh, head of the uh, Business Day uh, uh, finance editor for the New York Times, and uh, Dave's a great guy. He's originally from our neighborhood. He's from Lexington, Massachusetts, and um, and he used to ra- uh, ran the uh, European uh, Bureau of the Wall Street Journal and the finance uh, in London, and uh, he's going to talk about his uh, – his new book, uh, The Spider Network, a wild story of a math genius, a gang of uh, backstabbing bankers, and uh, one of the greatest scams in financial history. So, uh, uh, first of all, could you please tell us, our audience, about your background, where you grew up, and you know wh- who you've worked for, and what your specialty in, in work, and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I grew up as a loyal Red Sox fan in the Boston area. Um, and spent most of my career at the Wall Street Journal, uh, where I both in New York covering the financial crisis and then in London covering the European financial crisis. And returned from London to New York about a year ago, worked for the Journal, and then just last week started a new job at the New York Times, where I'm the finance editor. And uh, in between, managed to write a book. Well, you know, congratulations. And I, I read the book, and I tell you, David, you know, um, and <laughs> I, you know, I read this, I said, you know, this is a crisis I didn't even know about. And I knew kind of about it. And, and it's just like, uh, very, very, very few people understand it. And I'm so grateful you wrote the book. So, uh, about how banks manipulated LIBOR. Um, so your book is called the spider network. What was the spine network and why should it concern us? Well, the spider network, the book is about, uh, as you said, a scandal involving LIBOR, which is arguably the world's most important number, and it's something that very few people have actually heard of. And it's an acronym. Uh, it stands for the London Interbank Offered Rate, which is the it's an interest rate set every day in London by a group of the world's biggest banks. And it matters greatly in the lives and finances of a substantial portion of the world's population because it's what determines the interest rate that people and institutions pay when they borrow money. So if you have an adjustable rate mortgage, that the interest rate you're paying is often attached to LIBOR. If you have an auto loan, a student loan, a credit card loan, LIBOR comes into play. If you're a big uh, company that borrows money in the capital markets, the interest rate you're sometimes paying is uh, affected by LIBOR. If you're a town or city, and that borrows money, you're paying an interest rate based on LIBOR. And so this is uh, a number that has the potential to affect the financial situations and livelihoods of millions and millions of people, probably hundreds of millions of people all over the world. And it, it's something that until recently was 
essentially no one was paying any attention to how it was set. And it was, yeah. it was designed behind closed doors by a group of banks in London. And it was overseen by a trade association, essentially a lobbying group for <laughs> yeah. the big banks. And there is no regulars paying any attention, no central banks paying any attention. And uh, a number of traders at some of the world's biggest banks who had a lot to gain or lose based on the direction of LIBOR realized that it was very easy for them to nudge it up or down by small amounts in directions that could be enormously profitable for them. So they they realized that the people who are actually responsible for setting LIBOR are in often in essentially clerks who work in the bowels of these big banks that no one pays any attention to. And, it, you know, if you're a... a high-flying trader, all it takes is to kind of lean on those people and ask them, please, could you get LIBOR up a little bit for me today or get it down a little bit for me today? And millions, tens of millions of dollars were hanging in the balance for the bank traders. And they, over a number of years, became very adept at having their way with this rate in a way that was enormously profitable for them and possibly very damaging to everyone else in the world. And so the, the Spider Network, which is the title of the book, references one particular group of bank traders and brokers that were especially aggressive at doing this. And it was a group led by a guy named Tom Hayes, who is a mildly autistic mathematician. He's based in, he's born and raised in London. And he, for a very long time, became the, he was kind of the, the toast of the banking industry for many years. He rose up from uh, kind of an engineering background to being one of the most sophisticated, uh, voracious traders in the world. And along the way, learned how this LIBOR game was played. And he proceeded to take it to a new, more ambitious level. And before long, emerged as kind of the poster boy for what was happening in these markets. And so he is the subject of the book. And uh, it's, you know, the story is meant to not only show how the scandal worked, but also show how personal this is and how it's not nameless, faceless institutions and markets that cause scandals and cause scams and cause crises, but it's people who are influenced by the cultures of the institutions and the industries in which they work and, and by the interpersonal relationships they have and by their own kind of personal, personal idiosyncrasies. And it's, I mean, ultimately, in a story about the rise and fall of Tom Hayes and what that says not only about the financial system, but also about and the, the way the, the world kind of punishes people and how power is exercised. You, you know, and the thing about David is, um, thank you, um, uh, well, I, I think, you you know, reading the book, obviously you get to know Tom Hayes, and you almost, and he, unfortunately he had a fall in, in the sword in the end. It seems like he took the brunt of everything. But what I what I discovered, David, maybe I'm wrong, that this whole LIBOR thing was a real, like, revenue generator uh, for, for these banks. And um, and I think was it Hayes started out at the RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, and um, under the tutelage of... Uh, uh, Fred the Shred Goodwin, and um, um, it was a big, big moneymaker for these banks, wasn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And he, one of the things I've liked about this story and the reporting and writing of this book is that it, it Hayes in some ways kind of resembles Forrest Gump in the sense that <laughs> he rose up through the banking industry at a time when there were all these colorful and you know deeply flawed characters, Fred Goodwin being uh, one of the main ones. 
you kind of get these uh, these cameos by people like Fred the Shred uh, coming in, and but and yeah, he was at us. The banks realized that this could be a huge profit center for them, and you. So he went from RBS, the Royal Bank of Scotland, to the Royal Bank of Canada, and then to UBS, which is the big Swiss bank, which is where he spent the bulk of his career and gotten the bulk of the trouble that he got in. And at the time, he was he was he moved to Tokyo with UBS, and the LIBOR trading business was such a big business for the bank at the time that when they made annual or quarterly presentations to their shareholders, there was a line item in the, the slideshows that they would show investors that showed LIBOR trading as one of their biggest growth areas. And that's something that, I mean, that was a presentation the CEO of the entire bank was given. So this is something, this wasn't, well, it was, it was definitely an obscure backwater, but it was something that was generating hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue for the banks. And that was at a time when the banking industry was in the throes of this huge once-in-a-century financial crisis, and every dollar they could make was enormously valuable. And so the group, the, the banks had figured out a way to take something, LIBOR, which is was designed to kind of be a lubricant for the financial system and make normal financial transactions simpler. They've, and they found a way to monetize that for their own benefit. And in some ways, that's kind of a parable for what I think what went wrong in a lot of the financial industry in the years uh, leading up to the crisis, which is that banks went from being from playing the role of intermediaries and kind of the lubricators of the financial system. I mean, that's what a bank is intended to do in its purest sense. It's supposed to make to efficiently distribute capital between uh, lenders and borrowers, and so people who are savers and borrowers, so people who have money can efficiently distribute that money to people who need money, and that's you know that's a very good way for capitalism to work. And banks ended up. And starting a few decades ago, really perverting that system and, and making it so that they were essentially extracting rent from the economy in a way that was extremely lucrative for their employees and their executives and their shareholders. And But it was really bad, it turns out, for the overall financial system and the overall economy. Uh, I don't know, Dave, as, as much uh, changed. Um, you know, And one of the things which I, I got, got this from reading your book, you said uh, – uh, Goodwin, um, he was actually knighted by the Queen uh, for his services for the British banking industry. He became, they knighted him for this type of work. And well, not only did they knight him, they then years later, uh, I think probably in 2013, if memory serves, uh, revoked his knighthood. Which is, I, I was in London at the time, and there is, uh, you know, that's not the easiest thing to do. It's very unusual and uh, sparks this very vigorous debate about whether that was the appropriate uh, response to Goodwin's fall from grace. But there are people, I mean, the, it, it was remarkable in researching this book, the degree, and going back through some of the old speeches, not even that old, from the mid-2000s, the speeches the politicians were giving, um, lavishing praise upon these bank executives who were soon to be disgraced. And there were top politicians in the UK, and I, in the U.S. too, were and Dick Fold was a person oh, that geez. everyone was <laughs> eager to uh, associate themselves with because he, at Lehman Brothers, he was bringing in or seen as creating all these new jobs and creating all this new, essentially, tax revenue for the government. And because they were growing so quickly and because they were so lucrative and so profitable. And it's a clear lesson that of the financial crisis is that 
banks get to be enormously profitable and, and start to grow very quickly, that's, it's easy to get caught up in the euphoria around that and be happy about all the jobs they're creating and all the wealth they're creating and the trickle-down effect that has, but it's very dangerous. Banks are not something that should be growing quickly. They're something that if they're serving the proper role in an economy and in a financial system, they should be stable and they should be conservative and they should be playing the role of efficiently and effectively distributing capital. They should not be playing the role of gambling in a casino. They should not be – and every, every dollar that a bank makes in profit is something that is not going somewhere else in the economy. And that's – it's not that the banks shouldn't be profitable, but the wild profitability and the, the, the skyrocketing growth of the mid-2000s. And we still see some of that now today. And it's – I don't see that as a sign of a financial system working as efficiently as it possibly could. Now, now, I don't know if you know of another economist who had him on this show, uh, David, uh, John Kay. He uh, he's a he teaches at the London School of Economics. He's been on our show, and he wrote a book, Other People's Money. Are you familiar with him uh, at all? It's a, it's a great book. Yeah, and the thing is that with, with John, we had him on the show, and then he, we would become friends over this. He, he, I, I never realized this is that uh, most people think, you know, normally think that the a normal role of a bank is to lend money to other people for cars, homes, uh, college loans, you know, things which are going to be productive use of society. Um, that's what I thought. Um, actually, as, as, as little as 12 months ago or 13 months ago. Um, but we, we, it was David, and I did the research, is that uh, uh, the U.S. banks, only 10% of the revenue really comes from originating loans. But the Brits, uh, and you worked in the city of London, it's only 3%. So most yep. most of this stuff is it's not about lending it's not about putting it into society it's about gambling, and it was John Kay who who taught me in in your book which it confirms is that really they're just trading amongst themselves am I correct? Yeah no it's a closed system to a very large degree and people or institutions that enter into that closed system in which the banks are primarily dealing with themselves and other really large sophisticated hedge funds or money managers. They do so at their own peril, and it's. I think that's a sign of a financial system that has really grown too large and too powerful. And I do think that in the years since the crisis, that balance has been partly restored. And I think a lot of bankers who you talk to are would probably acknowledge that there was that pendulum had swung way too far in the wrong direction in the years leading up to the crisis, and that in fact was one cause of the crisis. And I think there's much greater recognition today that banks, they, they play a vital role in the economy and the financial system, but that does not, that's not the same as saying that they should be, the goal of society or government or regulators should be for them to be as profitable as possible. That's certainly not the case. And there's, and without banks, the financial system collapses and the economies collapse, but you need to have a they need to be playing a limited role, not not primarily. They, they shouldn't be the primary engine of an economy. Yeah, and um, you know, we were talking prior to having you on, uh, David. Uh, uh, we'll get back to uh, Hayes and the Spider Network, but uh, you saw that uh, these leverage buyouts, David, uh, which are you know, which, <laughs> which you, when you start looking at this stuff, that's very similar in the UK and in the US with uh, all these things with uh, dead engineered. Uh, business models they're 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 um the whole which is all supported by the banks 
I mean, we're seeing a lot of casualties here. Uh, you know, it, Toys R Us, I mean, it's the largest toy retail in, in the U.S., I think probably in the world, um, which is kind of interconnected to this. Am I correct? Yeah, well, definitely there are huge risks of levering things up, and that's the entire business model of private equity firms. There is some, I think there, I, and Toys R Us is clearly a case where it was badly over-levered, and that had really negative consequences. I think it's a little, I, I don't think private equity or leveraged buyouts are the root of the problem with Toys R Us necessarily. I mean, the, the root of that is that Amazon and Walmart are taking over the retail industry. And, you know, I, I've got two little kids, and I wouldn't ever consider setting seven foot in a Toys R Us. I, it's, that just sounds like a miserable experience to me, and I'd much prefer to just buy my stuff on Amazon or at a local toy store. And I think that there's probably a big generational shift going on there that has really undermined the business model of a lot of those big companies. But if they were not so laden with debt, it would be much easier for them to withstand these downturns and to be able to reinvent themselves. And as it stands, they have huge debt and interest payments that they're just not going to be able to meet. And so that it's a disaster. David, uh, congratulations, by the way, on the promotion. So, what's your what's your uh, what's your technical title going to be? Uh, I'm the finance editor <laughs> at the New York Times. Awesome! Congrats. That's awesome. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, well, Thank I have you. a project I've been working on it, but maybe we could talk at some point. But uh, one of the things which uh, I you know I think I've sent you my have I sent you my books prior, David? I, I, yes, yeah. Okay. Um, um, one of the things which um, I found in in the a lot of this was the, what do you call it, light touch regulation in the UK, and um, uh, could you explain to the to our audience what light? There didn't seem to be there was any regulation. What was the light light touch in the UK? So, so light touch was essentially a business model that the UK pioneered in the uh, the first part of the of the two thousands, and it the idea was that they would take as hands-off an approach toward regulating banks and other financial institutions as they possibly could. And the reason for that was not that they thought that meant or made for safer uh, or sounder financial institutions. It was that it it gave the UK, it gave London a competitive advantage over rival financial centers like New York or Hong Kong or places like that. And the goal, it was very explicit, the goal was to attract more banks and financial institutions to set up shop and set up their headquarters in London than in other competing cities because that was perceived as a great way to expand the tax base and to have have new create new jobs and there was a successions of British governments both conservative and labor really embraced this idea and it forced other cities including New York to uh, to kind of relax some of their regulations. And so the U.S. responded to this push by the U.K. by watering down its own rules. And this kind of, it became essentially a race to the bottom in terms of regulation. And and we all know how this story ended. I mean, there's uh, that, that was a substantial cost of the financial crisis was, or a substantial missed opportunity in preventing the financial crisis was this mass relaxation of, oversight of the banking industry in the years leading up to the crisis. And and again, I think there's, I want to be careful about not being too antagonistic toward the people who were 
in charge of this shift because they, to their credit, have generally acknowledged that they made a catastrophic mistake. And I think that takes a fair amount of courage among politicians these days to acknowledge that they really screwed something up. And I think they deserve credit for being candid about that. And But it's really important, especially right now, to remember these lessons of recent history, I think, because we're with the, in the Trump administration, there is you know, from time to time, very vigorous pushes, especially behind the scenes, to relax these regulations, that relax parts of Dodd-Frank. And I think the industry at times has legitimate points they're making about particular bits of language in these rules or particular ways in which they're being enforced that are counterproductive or at least are unnecessarily onerous. But it's really important that people not forget that the while some well, not all rules are wisely thought out, and they sometimes do have unintended consequences. The general notion that banks should be tightly regulated and should not be all that profitable, that, that's, well, that's a well-founded argument that is supported by history, both going back a long time and very recently. And I, I think there's a lot of revisionist history sweeping over Washington and to a certain extent London right now, uh, where people view regulation as primarily uh, detrimental to business. And the reality is that if you're running a good business, you should view a lot of these regulations as supportive because it's really important to have a financial system that has integrity and that has credibility and that is perceived from the outside as being stable because otherwise it has you have the potential for crises and you also have the potential for just the gradual erosion of faith in the financial system. And that's something that's very dangerous. I, I couldn't agree more, David. And uh, But the, the thing is that uh, this is why I always tell people to think for themselves, do their own research. But uh, people uh, very rarely research this stuff unless they're nerds like you or me or other people are, and some of our listeners out there. And um, But the thing is, when they were, they were doing all these, uh, they were doing... This also caused with the same type of an attitude causes the unregulation of derivatives with the Commodities Future Trading Divi- um, Commission yep. during Bill Clinton during his Clinton years, right? Um, this is, yeah, you know, no, that's exactly right. I mean, it was the Clinton administration that was um, really was the most aggressive opponent or proponent of loosening the thing. They neutered the CFTC. They Bob Rubin, his group of former Goldman executives. And they neglected regulation of derivatives. They uh, knocked down Glass-Steagall. And there was, and it, it's been, you know, the I think these days the left is seen as a, more of the champion of regulation and curbing uh, excessive activity by the banks. And the reality is in both the U.S. and the U.K., it was, well, in the U.S. it was the Democrats, and the U.K. was primarily the labor government that were the ones tearing down these regulations. And, and certainly that was done with the support of Republicans <laughs> oh, yeah. and conservatives. But it's not, there really isn't a left-right issue. I mean, this is both parties in the U.S. deserve considerable amounts of responsibility for the, and the reckless activity that took place after these regulations were all eliminated. Amen, David. And that's why I'm a political atheist, uh, because I know if, if there was really a kind of a centerpiece of regulation where it was torn down is when they tore down uh, uh, Glass-Steagall in uh, 99 and um, 
and uh, then we had Enron and WorldCom and all that other stuff, and uh, yada yada yada. And um, so, and you know, and now they're into everything now. And now they're huge asset managers, and they're doing a not that great of a job on that. But in any event, so, but how much were these guys? It's always about the money. How much were these guys like Hayes? And I think you have a sympathy for Hayes. He seems to be the fall guy. I mean. Um, but weren't they paid very, very well? I mean, it always seems to be about the money. How much money was Hayes making? Well, Hayes actually, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but he was actually underpaid by industry standards. And <laughs> now he is very nicely paid by normal human standards. I certainly wish I was making as much money as he was. I mean, in, a, in his best year, he made about $5 million. Uh, but in a number of other years, he was paid in the low six figures, So, which, again, is not that anyone should have sympathy for someone making that much money, but that is by banking industry standards, by financial standards, that's not, it doesn't put him at the top tier by any stretch of the imagination. And I, I do have sympathy for Hayes. And I think Hayes was a very much a product of a financial system that encouraged people to push the envelope and exploit little inefficiencies and try and find not quite ways to cheat, but ways to come as close to cheating as you could without actually getting caught. And, Hayes did that very aggressively, too aggressively, but he did so with the knowledge and support of his bosses and his bosses' bosses, and right up the food chain. And and yet, and when he got caught, he was the one that the banks really threw under the bus. And he was, a, and and I think to their eternal discredit, the regulators and law enforcement agencies in both the U.S. and Britain both accepted what the banks were saying that this was the work of more or less a very small handful of bad actors acting in isolation was not the responsibility of the the institutions themselves, much less their executives. And so you look now at who has been punished for this, and and Hayes is sitting alone in a maximum security prison, and there are none of his immediate colleagues have gone to jail. And a number of the people who were aware of what he was doing and really should have been in a position to stop it are remain not only out of jail free, but they remain gainfully employed and often in senior positions in the finance industry in the U.S. and elsewhere. And that to me, yeah, it may, that gives me a feeling I have great at least empathy toward Hayes and certainly a lot of sympathy toward his wife and their young son. But it also has really helped me understand a lot of the anger that fueled the rises of people like Trump and Bernie Sanders in the primaries last year. And because a lot of what they're tapping into is this feeling that financial elites get away with murder while everyone else gets screwed. And, you know, that's an oversimplification, and that's kind of caricaturing complex issues, but the, there's a lot of truth to it. I and mean, there's the people who caused the financial crisis, by and large, were not severely punished. They lost their jobs, but they often walked away with tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of their personal fortunes intact. And in these scandals that have erupted since then, whether it's LIBOR or or manipulation of other things or insider trading even, you see low-level people bearing the brunt of the criminal or the legal responsibility, while the people that were responsible for creating cultures and creating incentives that led to this behavior have nothing's happened to them. I mean, in, in many cases, they remain employed in the same industries. In other cases, they've left the industries, but with great personal wealth. And that's, it's hard to argue, it's hard for me to understand how 
that with that kind of system set up, what that doesn't create any deterrent factor for people who are you know thinking in the future of maybe pushing the envelope. They see that as especially if you're at a senior level, there's no reason to not encourage your subordinates to push a little too aggressively because the history, recent history has shown that the people who will bear the brunt of the responsibility for that, if it ever gets detected, will be the grunt. It'll be the low and mid-level people and the people at the top of the organization. All they need to do is keep their instructions, you know, keep it oral, not over recorded phone lines. Yeah. And law enforcement and regulators don't seem to have much appetite or capacity to go after these guys. And I, I, that's a very discouraging message. And I think it, it has fueled a lot of anger and a lot of the populism we see in both sides of the Atlantic right now. Yeah, and, you know, the whole thing, because um, Hayes was primarily uh, worked for UBS, but then he worked for Citigroup for, for a bit. But in your book, I read your book, and it was it's a great book, by the way, and um, and people need to go out and get it and buy it and um, so uh, they understand more about the story. But I, Hayes' boss, Sasha Page, was the guy, I guess Sasha Page maybe was the guy's name, um, his boss, uh, Sasha Prince, maybe what? what? Yeah, there is. Well, there are, he had a lot of bosses. Sasha Prince is one of them. Mike Pierre, but it goes right up. I mean, there's senior executives who still are at the banks that were, you know, definitely at the very least, the most generous explanation of this should have known what was going on. And I, I think the truth is that they did know what was going on, and in some cases actually participated in what was going on, and just. Again, this isn't a single up Pierre or Sasha Prince, yeah. but there's because I don't think they are actually the ones who, you know, knew the most necessarily. But they, but there are a lot of people and scores of these people that were involved in this scandal or other scandals that remain at large in the industry. And there's just no appetite <laughs> for prosecutors or regulars to go after them as far as I can tell. Uh, yeah, I could talk to you about a guy from Credit Suisse about his dividend recaps. It would still work. I can't believe all the bankruptcy he's caused, but he still works with Credit Suisse. Uh, I think you probably may know who I'm talking about. but Right, well, and this is, that's one of the things I like about this story is that it's it's not an isolated incident, right? There's, <laughs> this, this is a pattern that has repeated itself over and over and over again in the banking industry and probably in other sectors, other big businesses as well in the past couple decades and it's just really damaging and it's it it's not it's unjust a lot of these outcomes and it has no deterrent value to the people who stand to gain the most from this activity and who are in the best position to stop it now david you one of the things which you uh i just love the terminology it must be a british terminology um and one of the things which i love john Kay and uh, with your research, and this I'm very passionate about. Uh, it's always about using other people's money. Um, and the traders like uh, Hayes, and they always look for, for Muppets, which I think one of them yep. ended up being the um, the uh, Oklahoma uh, Police and Pension and Retirement System. Yep. What, what's a, Can you tell our audience what the Muppet is? Yeah, Muppet is a clueless customer, Some, someone essentially a mark. For these guys, and we, we talked earlier about how the finance system is essentially it's a closed system, and anyone who is not a big, sophisticated financial institution enters it at their own peril. Well, the police pension fund in Oklahoma City is a really good example of that. And they, first of all, had no business being, you know, investing in complicated interest rate derivatives, it was, it was Japanese interest rate derivatives of all things, and I, why they would wade into that. <laughs> 
mother's story, which is in a nutshell that they were envious of the uh, the returns that some of their the other pension funds were making, and so they hired an outside advisor, a consultant, to look at ways to kind of juice their portfolio. And one of the ways was investing in derivatives. And you start investing in these kind of complex securities, and you're entering an arena with institutions that can very quickly screw you over. And in fact, they, um, and one of my favorite anecdotes in the book is, and one of Hayes' early exper- earliest experiences on trading floors is he noticed that when a certain client would call into a trading floor to do to buy or sell something, there would be this huge competition among all the traders to for who could get that, be the one to deal with that customer. Because it was so easy to make money off of them. And, you know, there'd be shouting matchups on the trading floors that, and this isn't specific to the Oklahoma pension fund, but that the customers like that were just so easy to take advantage of. Uh, and, you know, the brokerages that handle a lot of business to the banks would also, they dole out these uh, trades with unsuspecting kind of slow-money clients uh, as rewards to the banks that had done past them business. So it's... Uh, I mean, the reality is the financial system, in especially in the years leading up to the crisis, but still to a certain extent today, remains a system where there's a lot of predatory behavior. And I think that culture has changed a bit in the past decade, but there's still a lot of it out there. Well, you know, you're doing a lot of great uh, work. And uh, if you've met my friend down there, Gretchen Morganson. I have. Oh, she's one of my faves, uh, you know. So uh, Gretchen, yeah, she's a, she's an excellent, excellent journalist. Yeah. So I mean, you, you keep doing the great work because uh, uh, we definitely need. Uh, I like truth tellers like yourself, David and Gretchen, and um, you know. Uh, but the uh, one of the things which I, you know, and I have about three or four pages of notes. That we're never going to be able to get to it, but uh, um, but all this started also helped uh, precipitate precipitate the collapse of UBS. Am I correct? Or, or, or this this one they were built. Well, it more coincided with the collapse of UBS. I mean, a lot of people ask me, did the LIBOR scandal have what connection did that have to the broader financial crisis? And the answer, I mean, it's kind of a two part answer. The first part is not much. I mean, it's not the financial crisis was going to happen regardless of whether people like Tom Hayes were manipulating LIBOR. So that's part one. Part two, which I think is a little more interesting, is that the same type of behavior and the same type of culture and the same type of incentive that caused the LIBOR scandal are what caused the financial crisis. Which, so, and the notion that uh, the way a trader's job is defined, or at least was defined on Wall Street in the city of London, is that your job is to go out and find inefficiencies in the market and loopholes that you could exploit. And that could be, it's basically getting an edge over your competitors. And the way, there are a lot of ways to do that. One is to you know, have a good trading idea. You could have a better computer system that can execute trades faster. You can have, uh, you could have stupider clients, or you can find in a system like LIBOR little kind of loopholes that you can tweak and exploit. And that's that attitude that the financial the financial system is something to be gamed and taken advantage of is exactly what caused the financial crisis. And it's extremely toxic, and really a perversion of what a financial system is supposed to do in a healthy economy. And so, and UBS was, in a lot of ways, the poster boy for this type of activity. It's not a coincidence that basically every huge 
colossal catastrophe in the financial system over the years, UBS has been a central part in it, whether it's CDOs or <laughs> bad mortgages or stupid hedge fund bets or risky leverage, leverage lending or LIBOR or tax evasion. I mean, the list goes on and on and on with UBS. And they're, they're one of a, you know, a handful of global banks that have proven completely incapable of avoiding the temptation to get into these really aggressive, really risky, uh, I, I think pretty toxic types of activity. And again, in fairness to UBS, they, I think, to a large extent, have turned over a new leaf in the past several years. And I think their culture's gotten a lot better. They've, they've gone back to their roots of being a Swiss wealth manager to a large extent. And I think that's I think that's healthy, and I think that's something that investors have rewarded them for. But certainly a decade ago, UBS was really epitomized a lot of what was wrong in the banking industry. And it's not a coincidence that's where Hayes learned how to be a trader. Well, yeah, someday, uh, whatever, you, I, I, I don't know if you know the guy by the name of Brad Birkenfeld. He's, he's actually a friend of mine. But uh, uh, but in any event, uh, David, how can people find out more about you or uh, find out about your book we, and everyone out there should buy your book? Yeah, the easiest thing to do is just Google it. So Google the Spider Network. You can Google my name, David Enrich. That'll send you to Amazon or to my publisher, HarperCollins, or to my Facebook page or Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram. Uh, I could give you all those handles, but that's no one's going to remember that. So just Google David <laughs> Enrich or the Spider Network. Okay, buy great. It, please. Yeah, please. Yeah, please. David, there you get two young kids, so he, David needs to set aside college funds. But David, uh, exactly. David, thank you so much, and God bless you. Keep up the good work. Congratulations on on your new job. You couldn't think of a better guy for a Boston guy, no less. And uh, I say hello to Gretchen, and um, uh, best of luck sure to you. Well. We'll do it again, David, sometime, okay? Great. Thanks so much, Barry. God bless. Right, take care. This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?